this is a um, effectual time of year. We come to the end of the year, and calendars have a way of being sacramental. So by sacramental, uh, calendars can indicate things. I mean, we indicate things sacramentally, like anniversaries and birthdays. Intrinsically, one day is not more than another. We know that, and yet we bring meaning to the calendar. The calendar helps us, in turn, bring meaning to life by thoughtfully reflecting on anniversaries and birthdays, holidays. We know that Easter is not the only time we celebrate the resurrection. Advent and Christmas time is not the only time we celebrate the entrance of the Christ child. But these special days help us reflect on the reality that all days are filled with resurrection. All days are filled with the birth of Christ. All days are special in our lives. So, Calendars have a way of being sacramental, indicative, um, metaphoric. And so we find ourselves now in the last Sunday of the year. And I think that's a good time. Juxtaposed against next Sunday, which will be the first Sunday of the year, this is a good time to reflect on time in a linear sense. And by time in a linear sense, I mean the, the passing of time. These three realities of time that we know as past and present and future. The past and the future sometimes seem so far apart and so different, and yet this season of the year reminds us that they're really, really close together. This Sunday we'll talk about the past. We'll reflect in hindsight and try to glean some wisdom from that. Next Sunday we'll look ahead with all the hopefulness that the calendar can indicate. And yet sandwiched between those two is the living reality, that the reality, as Eckhart Tolle says, that, that we truly only have, and that is the now. The only place we ever live, love, eat, sleep, pray, is in this moment. Last night, Nina and I were talking about this past year, from the mouth of baby and suckling, this 10-year-old little girl says, you know, some days I just wish I could start a whole new life. Anybody ever felt that? Some days I wish I could just start a whole new life. And uh, she was sitting on one edge of the bed, and Stan Jr. was sitting on the other edge, and I was leaning back against the pillow. And I said, you know, sis, really that, that, that is the gift that every day gives us. Because to some degree, every day we do start a new life. We take the accumulation of all of our days and years and months. And we remember the prophet said that God's mercies are new every morning. We remember the old stories, the metaphors from our past of how God provided manna just for the day. And, and to some degree, we do start a new life every day. So on the way to church this morning, we were talking about what do we want the new life of this day to be. And... She was so deeply moved that a moment ago she came over to me right here as I was trying to come up stage and she hugged me and she said, Dad, I just want to say I'm sorry for all the bad things I've done. <laughs> and that list is not too long on a 10-year-old. It was a profound moment. She held me and she said, I'm just sorry for all the bad things I've done. And I whispered something tender in her ear to which she responded, um, your breath smells like a stink bug. <laughs> so, Kind of broke the mood in the moment, but life of a ten-year-old. Two scriptures that I just wanted to read, and, and then I want to just say a few things that are so simple and yet so profound. 
and hopefully I can say them as well as they deserve to be said. But I want to read a couple of scriptures that if you've been around the church for any length of time, you've heard these in one form or the other. But the first is from the hand of St. Paul to the Philippian church, Philippians 3, and you know this in different iterations. But Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Who, who doesn't, by the way? And then he pauses and says in the sharing of his sufferings. Well, not so much there, but to know Christ only in the resurrection is to not know Christ. To know Christ only in the suffering is to not know Christ. Again, yin and yang. The good, the bad. I want to know Christ in resurrection. I want to know Christ in suffering. By becoming like him in his death. If somehow... Through that, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or in any way I've already reached the goal, but, but the one thing I do, man, we've preached this nine ways in Sunday, haven't we? Talked about it. It's been a favorite verse of so many of us. But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, Again, I don't consider that I've made it my own. I don't consider that I've made it to any degree. But this one thing I do, interesting, at the end of the year, looking back on 2015, reflect for a moment, how has your 2015 been? It's probably been, for most of us, an admixture, hasn't it? Not all good, not all bad. And I think even those words, good and bad, may be misleading at times. Maybe it's better to say, not all pleasant, not all unpleasant. Life is generally a, a mix, isn't it? My granddad used to say that um, good and bad run on parallel tracks, and a lot of times they get there at the same time. And, and they're so intertwined. Jesus said the wheat and the tare grow together in our lives, didn't he? And he said the root structures get so entangled that if you start yanking on what you think is the bad, it might impact the good. And there are times that you just have to release it and take your hands off of it and quit trying to fix and fret and manage. Paul said, one thing I do in this effort to move forward is I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. But the line that strikes me is at the end of the second, forgetting what lies behind. Now, another scripture the second epistle of Peter that I want to read that is a little less familiar but interesting. Peter says, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. Yet I think it's me or necessary, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, this body, to stir up by putting you, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Some translations say, to stir up your pure mind by way of remembering. One text says, the thing that we really need to do is forget. The other text says, the thing that we really need to do is to stir up our memory. Now, how do we reconcile that? You read these two scriptures together, and I, I think they indicate that we have a complex, maybe too strong of a word, but an interesting relationship with the past. 
On one hand, it's important that we use Paul's language to forget some things. I remember when Joseph, you remember the story of Joseph in the Bible, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. Tough story. I mean, the kid was put in a pit by his ten older brothers, and he had to sit down in the pit and listen to them discuss how they were going to kill him. And then finally one of them, in a fit of mercy or self-advantage, said, you know, there's no need to waste this kid. We can sell him to some Midianite slave traders who are always coming through here and make a dime on him. They pull him up out of the pit. He's still thinking this has all got to be a bad joke. And the next thing you know, he's in the back of a cart, sold into slavery by brothers. Arms reaching through the bars, crying, begging for mercy. As the brothers grow smaller in the distance, he simply sees them dividing the money that was given in exchange for his life. It gets down to Egypt, sold into slavery, works for a guy named Potiphar, finds favor in the guy's home, and finds so much favor that the guy's wife that owns him begins falling in love with him. You remember the story? Potiphar's wife falls in love with Joseph, comes on to him, he refuses with integrity. She lies and says he's the guy that the one that came on to her. And the next thing he knows, he's not just sold into slavery. Now he's put into prison improperly. Interesting thing about the way the Hebrews wrote that story was it said when Joseph was sold into slavery, the Lord was with him. And then it says when Joseph was put in prison, the Lord was with him. I don't know what consolation is immediately felt in that, but it's an interesting aside. God was always there. Not fixing anything, just abiding. Finally, through a series of unbelievable events, Joseph gets out of prison, is exonerated, and becomes the vice president of all of Egypt. And in that place, he continued to wrestle with the bitterness that comes when you're betrayed by somebody you love. And the Bible tells us that eventually, Joseph began to prosper so much in his new life. But interestingly, the prosperity of your new life doesn't always erase the bitter memories of your past. Joseph one day was approached by one of his servants who said, Your wife has gone into labor and she's already born a son. What should we do? And Joseph, beautiful part of the Genesis story, Joseph said, Calling Manasseh. And Manasseh, evidently at that point, was not a proper name. And if you would have heard it in English, you would have heard Joseph say to this servant or nursemaid, Call the baby forgetting. Call the baby forgetting. And as they looked at him, bemused and perplexed, why in the world would you call a baby forgetting? I mean, how'd you like to have the name forgetting? You're in class and the teacher says, hey, forget to take this chalk and come up and do your fours, multiplication table of fours. Forget him. Call him forget him. And as they looked at him, Joseph explained, and listen to this, this is, this is a classic line. Joseph said, call him forgetting because the Lord has made me forget all my sorrow. And, and in that, I think we begin to get an indication to the biblical writer's idea of what forgetting actually means. Steve, when Paul said, forgetting what's behind, 
I don't think in any way he's saying, I am erasing the memory of. I don't think Paul is saying, I'm forgetting that I was a religious terrorist. I'm forgetting that I murdered people in the name of my God, thinking I was doing something righteous. Forgetting where I came from. When Paul said, I'm forgetting those things that are behind me. I think the motif really begins in the Joseph story when Joseph said, Call the baby forgetting, for the Lord has made me forget all the sorrow. And then he names the sorrow. He said, All the sorrow of my father's house. All the things that my brother did to me. So divine forgetting is not the erasure of memory. Divine forgetting is the capacity to remember the event without feeling the state. The ability to recall the moments, Lee, to recall the incident, and to remember it peacefully now, to remember it graciously, with compassion for the other and yourself. I mean, there had to be years down in that prison cell where Joseph rolled over and he said, if I ever get out of here, if I ever see those brothers of mine, and somewhere, somewhere in the divine presence, compassionate divine presence, God must have thought, oh, Joseph, you're not ready. You're not ready. And he'd roll over and fight that thin sheet of cover and say, I, when I see them one day, but by the time the baby came, Joseph said, calling, forgetting, and it's interesting that it didn't say, for I have forgotten all the sorrow of my father's house. He said, the Lord has made me forget it. This is a divine act in your life. There are some things that are birthed out of divine capacity. And that's what Joseph was saying. And I see that less as this transaction from the outside to the end. But within all of us, in this image of God, this divine capacity, we have resources we have resources that maybe we choose not to or we don't believe that we have. For whatever reason, we don't access them. I remember one night in the old Pentecostal world, we used to always gather around the altar. And one lady in a little revival was preaching down in Louisiana. She was so burdened and so troubled. And I remember watching her tears for a while. And I got out beside her, Lenore. And as I got out beside her, I said, this can I help you. And pitifully, she turned her hands over and leaned over on me there at the altar. And she said, I just, I just can't forget. And she began to tell me about the sorrow and the abuse she had endured from a man. And it was severe. Later, the pastor himself corroborated to me that this woman had endured beyond what any human being should endure. And she leaned over that altar, Carol, she told me on several occasions, I just can't, I can't forgive. And I did something that may have been foolish, but it felt like the right thing to do after I prayed with her there for a little while. <laughs> Finally looked at her and as peacefully and humbly as I could, I told her, I said, sis, you know that you're going to have to let him go. She responded again through tears, I just can't. 
I looked at her and I said, yes, you can. And I remember almost in an instant, her tears dried and she looked at me fiercely and she said, I won't! And I looked at her, Carol, and I smiled and I said, now we're getting somewhere. Because it's not that we can't, it's that we won't. This is the divine capacity to forgive. To be able to drive past that place, to see that person, to relive the moment, to remember the sorrow of the Father's house or whatever it is, and be able to say, the Lord has made me forget, not the event, but the sorrow. On one hand, there are some things that we need to forget in a divine sense. And on the other hand, Peter said, I want to stir up your pure mind by causing you to remember. And maybe these extreme-sounding, different poles of psychological process, maybe they're not as far apart as what we believe. Maybe the tension being described, on one hand, of forgetting, and the other hand, of remembering, maybe what's being said is that we simply need to find a proper relationship with the past. We simply need to find a way to live peacefully with this accumulation of life experience that we call the past. We've got to find a way of coming into position of relationship with a past that is healthy and life-giving for us. And if that's the question, or if that's the answer, if that's the tension resolved, then I think the question that begs for us, the first question that I want to just talk a little bit about today, is, is what is a healthy way to live in relationship to the past? For the woman leaning over an old altar praying to find peace. As we all know, the old adage is that holding bitterness against somebody is like eating rat poison and hoping they die, right? What is the proper way of living in relationship to the past? Not just the past. And when I talk about past, it's really important for us to know we're not talking about world history here. This is not some big macro thing that we're trying to stay in relationship with. I'm not talking about U.S. history, world history. I'm not even talking about church history. I'm talking about my history. What is the proper way that I can live in relationship to the past? Not just those things done to me, but those things done by me. It's interesting. Anytime somebody teaches a lesson on forgiveness, we are always trying to figure out how we can apply that and forgive all those people who hurt us. Forgetting sometimes that we've also been the herder, haven't we? Forgetting that we're not just a group of people who need to learn how to forgive all those bad people. We are those people. We're a group of people who need to learn how to be forgiven as well. And not just to forgive others, but to forgive ourselves. Maybe that's the hardest thing to do of all. How do I live in relationship to the past? Not just the bad stuff that's happened to me, not just the bad stuff that's happened by me, not just in terms of forgiving others and forgiving myself. How do I live in relationship to the past in terms of what's good about the past? How do I learn to let go, not just of failures, but of successes? Those might be the hardest thing of all. How do I open myself to new, formative, life-shaping, not identity changing, but identity shaping moments. How many people facing an empty nest? How many athletes at the end of their career? How many old rock stars 
How many of us just simply can't let go? Not of the failures, but of the successes. And we end up missing what is to be by holding on to what was. I mean, there are so many elements of the past that I think we're talking about here. Even when Paul said, forgetting those things that are behind, he wasn't just talking about all the miserable failures of his religious life, but Paul was talking about the successes of his religious life, some of which may be harder to let go of than even the failures. So the question begs, how do we live in relationship to the past? Next week I want to talk a little bit more about why is it so hard to let go of the past. I just mentioned and then maybe even go into how do we integrate the past into a very positive present future. But for now, one question. Closing out the year, last Sunday of the year, 52 of these we've had, looking back. Why is the past so important? Well, for me, the most obvious answer is the past holds the potential of creating wisdom. The past is important because it holds the potential, and I say only potential because it has to be actualized by me, but the past holds the potential of creating wisdom and insight, and if the past can create insight and wisdom that can be applied to the present, then there is a possibility that my present can be full and meaningful, benefited by all of the things, pleasant and unpleasant. Because all the past is, is the accumulation of all of our experiences. The pleasant, the unpleasant. And when employed properly, if I am humble, and if I'm open, and if I'm teachable, and if I'm not what I have the potential to be at times, stubborn. To use Edison's now cliched words, we not only learn what works, we learn what doesn't, don't we? Because life is a laboratory, and in this laboratory of life, our, our mistakes and failures are redeemed. That's what Edison was saying. All of these mistakes and failures are redeemed by inspiring me via their ineffectualness, even their pain. These painful failures and mistakes have a way of somehow being redeemed by wisdom. And I can replace them with better ways of living, things that work. And the redemption can be so complete at times that we begin looking back wondering if calling those things mistakes and failures is really the proper thing. We look back, man, boy, haven't we wrestled with this, and we begin asking ourselves, what really is a mistake? What really is an abject Henry Nowen said we go from face to face looking in the eyes of every person who will hear our story, looking in their eyes for absolution and forgiveness. Because we can't make peace with our past, we hope that we'll find grace somehow through them. Until finally we come to the conclusion that that grace can't be given through another. It's got to be found in your own soul. And maybe the grace that we require is not as great as, is not as, great as we suppose because Maybe those things we call failures and mistakes are actually just the humble, broken steps that have led us to this wonderful place. The good and the bad interwoven so much together that I look back and I wonder if it wouldn't have been for those steps, would I have been here? Could I have come here? What is a mistake? What is a failure? We come to the end of the year and we juxtapose our hearts and our souls to the past. We open 
ourselves to the past and we and we decide to live thoughtfully, intentionally, and mindfully, informed by all of the experiences of this past year, fully present, given to the now, knowing that just a short time ago, this now that I'm living was held only at the future with all kinds of hope, and here I am, don't miss it. Knowing that in an equally short time, this present now will be an unchangeable part of my past. Don't miss it. May it be filled and inspired and informed by all that has brought me to this point. And to help us not miss or waste the present moment, we hold and we utilize and we take time to do a few things with the past. We remember honestly. God, it is so easy to lie to ourselves. We reflect graciously, oh, God in heaven, it is so easy to beat ourselves up. We review humbly, openly, and we release freely. I heard Pete Rollins, the great philosopher, say earlier this year, he said, we wander through the graveyards and on many tombstones, especially for the first half of the last century, there was a there was a, a now a cliched epitaph that was etched into many a gravestone, and that epitaph was that our loved one was gone but not forgotten. And Pete said, "So these loved ones of ours that we have laid to rest, we honor them and we remember them by saying they're gone. They may be gone, but they're not forgotten." But Pete went on to say, and I thought it was so insightful, that the real ghosts in our life, the real haunts in our life, are not the things that are gone but not forgotten. The real ghosts in our life are the things that are forgotten but not gone. The things that we press to our subconscious. The hurts, the pains, the mistakes. The real ghosts in our life are those that are Forgotten, but they're not gone. Oh, they're, they're not gone at all because they live on impacting us in real ways every day. Even though we're unaware of the source, even though we're unmindful of where they're coming from, these ways of being continue to haunt us wounds gone by. Emily Dickinson famously said that the wound in her life grew so large until her whole life fell into it. You ever met somebody like that? The wound grows so large until they smell through it, they taste through it, they see through it, they hear through it. Boy, the holiday season is the time to stir all of this up. Somebody said the most famous words ever spoken, or the most frequent words ever spoken at family gatherings are, what do you mean by that? We gather together with those that we have wounded and been wounded by, and we sit around and we are so glad to see them and so glad to leave them. Somebody said happiness is a loving family in a city far, far away. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and it's truth that will set you free. I think you can fill in there. You'll know your ghost, and your ghost will set you free. You become mindful of those things that you'd rather not be mindful of. The wound grew so large, she said, untended by the antibodies of grace and forgiveness until it swallowed me up. Later, she looked back on her life and said, I'm not sure it was the wound grew so large or 
where my life became so small, but the reality is no one life should ever fit in one wound, and yet it can happen, can it? As we're unmindful, as we don't tend graciously to these ghosts, these patterns, these past experiences in our life, they move from woundedness to infection to gangrenous, and at times we have to do radical amputations. And these radical amputations could have been could have been avoided if we simply would have known our truth, if we simply would have known our ghost. The fact of the matter is, you remember whether you think you do or not, your body, we're beginning to realize your body holds in cellular memory these things that are a part of your past. And you can either live animalistically in knee-jerk response out of your base lizard brain, cellular memory, neural pathways, ruts in your life that are the road of least resistance. And when the water of life hits, it just... And at the end of the day, you look back and say, what was that? Where did that come from? Why am I so angry? Why did I say that to my kid? Why did I do that to my wife? What was I thinking? Where did that come from? I tell you where it came from. It came from memory. Not conscious, spiritually held memory. Not mindful, intentionally steward memory. But memory that's invested down in your body that's just reacting all day long. Only to experience in the consequences of all the time that you kick those around you. You reflect back at the end of the day hoping that somehow apologies and begging for forgiveness and promising that you'll be new and better is going to somehow fix it. And yet all the sincerity in the world, all the remorse in the world isn't going to rectify. The only thing that's going to rectify is deep spiritual transformation that comes from being brave enough and courageous enough to become mindful of the ghost in my life. To dig down deep and tend to those wounds and allow the doctors of grace to press those places that hurt so that they might be traced back. We can do some of this on our own. There are three simple things that I would like to leave you with today. Mark Nepo said the only way to have the life we want is to be present to the life we have. Carl Jung said, what we refuse to bring into consciousness comes to us as faith. A lot of times what we call faith did not have to be faith. It was simply what we chose not to bring into consciousness. Jesus said you'll know your truth and it'll make you free. Someone said whatever is not transformed in you will be transmitted by you. Take a pause, say it again. Whatever is not transformed in you will be transmitted by you. The old upper down motto said, if you can't get out of it, you might as well get into it. What we don't deal with from our past will inevitably deal with us, and it will not deal kindly with you. Three things. The first, in this sense of biblical remembering. Spiritual remembering. All of the great traditions point to this with their own language. But to remember is first of all to review 
and to look back as honestly and truthfully as I can. If 2015 is going to be conscripted for my game, if 2015 is going to be conscripted for your game, if all that has been your year is going to be utilized for your game, first of all, you're going to have to accept it, review it, honestly. And to look at the raw material that God has to work with. All of my life I heard that scripture, Romans 8.28, for God works all things together for our good. And I leaned on that so reliantly that I almost thought, you know, if God works all things together for good, I don't even have to be circumspect about what I give Him. I can give God whatever raw material that I want to give God, and God will work it all for good. But the reality is that doesn't work so well in life. And more and more, I will say, I, I really hope to give God better raw material to work with. But the reality is that I look at the raw material that God has to work with in my life, it's kind of like a cake. There's some sugar and there's some raw eggs. There's some sweet stuff and there's some sour stuff. But somehow, by divine grace, God can mix it together. But as I review, I have to review honestly. And I have to admit that there are some things that are good and there are some things that are bad. There are some things that are pleasant and there are some things that are unpleasant. But these are the elements that I have given God to work with. The second thing, after I've just laid those things bare and said this is the raw material. The second thing is I need to reflect. For years and years and years, spiritual reflection for me was to look back at these things that God had at God's disposal to work with. And I would ask myself, spiritual reflection for me was to ask myself, what do these things mean? And more and more and more, I'm looking less at life that way. I don't look at everything that happens in my life and say, what from an eternal perspective does this mean? Because I really believe that the proper eternal perspective is to ask the question, what meaning, what meaning am I going to bring to these things? Yesterday, the day after Christmas, I lost a good friend. My father's best friend lost his son that I grew up with my entire life. We were sitting there in the living room yesterday and I could hear Jerry on the other end of the line who just lost his 46-year-old son. A year and a half ago, his son lost his 17-year-old in a car accident. So their last two Christmases have been the loss of a 17-year-old and the loss of his dad. And now this grandpa, my dad's best friend, is wrestling. And I heard him literally on the other end saying, why? In other words, what does this mean? And I even heard somebody religiously ask the question, I wonder what God is saying. And I almost wanted to scream, nothing! How about God not saying anything? How about God's crying? You might have a different opinion than I on that, and, and who knows? But I feel less and less in my life that my job is to inspect everything that happened. And to ask myself, what is God saying and what does this mean? I think the divine gift is that things happen in this life and God is asking us, what is this going to mean now? The question is not what does it mean, the question is what meaning will I bring to it? 
am I going to take this? Maybe the divine hands that I used to believe were mixing the cake. Maybe those hands are at the end of my arms. Maybe that's what God's saying. What's this last year mean to you? What meaning are you going to bring to it? How are you going to superintend my grace? These things that have happened. And, and when we reflect, I, I think as we reflect back on this past year, I think we not only have to reflect and review honestly, I think we have to reflect and review compassionately. You as much as anyone in the entire universe deserve your love, compassion, forgiveness, and acceptance. I want to say that again. As much as anybody in this universe, you deserve your compassion. The issue of love and forgiveness will always bring you face to face with yourself because it's impossible to love others without loving yourself first. We reflect compassionately. We give ourselves grace. Deep knock on said, when I heal my wounds, it heals my fathers, and it heals the wounds of my children and future generations. The cycle stops. Compassion is not a relationship, Pima Chodron said, between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. Only when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others. Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. That is why the 12-step world is so powerful, because it's a group of people who sit not in isolation, wrestling with their brokenness and humanity, but they sit together and they draw straight from the stories of others. There is a powerful healing virtue that flows from the me too of a common humanity. We give ourselves grace. We reflect honestly, compassionately. And after we have reviewed and after we have reflected honestly, compassionately, forthrightly. And the last thing that I would want to say to you about this year, and I think it perhaps is the most powerful and the most needful, is we release it. We release what no longer serves us through forgiveness. I don't know who said it, it's been quoted many times, but someone said, ultimately forgiveness is giving up all hope of having had a different past. Forgiveness is giving up all hope of having had a different past. An incredibly wise person said, you cannot make yourself feel bad enough to fix the past. You cannot self-flagellate, you cannot whip yourself, you cannot beat yourself, you cannot feel enough shame, you cannot put yourself in enough pain, you cannot run to the altar enough, say enough, tell marriage, or do enough good service. You cannot self-condemn enough to change what has happened. And as we come to the end of 2015, and as we review it, all the good, the bad, the ugly, the pleasant, the unpleasant, as we look at it, and as we reflect on it, with that central question, what meaning am I going to bring to this? How am I going to steward this? I remember that even the divine can't get the clenched fist, and I begin the process of unclenching my fist with compassion, because some of this barbed wire that we hold on to, we hold on to it in a self-punishing way. Hoping that if we punish ourselves enough, maybe others won't punish us. We live with the scarcity mentality 
that there's not enough grace, there's not enough love, there's not enough kindness, the universe isn't big enough to handle and digest my reality. But ultimately, God calls us to let go. Two thousand fifteen has been good and it's been difficult for so many of us, for probably all of us, it's life. I was working on this message last night, the way my children and I ended up on the bed together, is I was working on this message and I put down my nose in one room and I walked around the corner into the other room. Thank God for an imperfect but good kid. Don Stan Jr. is lying on the bed all 17 years of him, and his 10-year-old sister is up on his shoulder, and she's crying. <coughs> I said, what are you doing, bud? He said, we're just talking about this past year. And I sat down, and I said, you guys need me? And she didn't look at me, and he looked up at me, and he said, I don't think so. They could. You got it. I left and I came back in a little while and they were sitting up and that's when I assumed my triangulated position there on the bed. And in her 10-year-old way of speaking, she said, sometimes I just wish I could start a new life. What, what is that? that? That's divine grace uncurling a little pair of clenched fists. A little girl that's still trying to figure out how the pain could be fixed, how the corrections could be made, shucking and jiving, manipulating, struggling, working, pressing, fretting, striving, all the things we do, trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But then even in a ten-year-old soul, at some point you begin to make peace with the fact that all the king's horses and all the king's men all the striving and all the toiling can. And there's this motif that runs even through our biblical tradition of letting go. It's, it's Jesus not skipping headlong to a cross, but going by way of Gethsemane. And there was this three-hour process of unpeeling his fingers until finally there, there was this whispered, nevertheless, it's, it's Moses' mother. I mean, for months she's been hiding her baby. I mean, the past is awful. Failures were made and a group of people ended up in slavery in Egypt and now things are so bad that the Pharaoh says all of the little boys in this land, when they're born, throw them in the river where the crocodiles are. And she's living in that painful mix of past and present. And she's hiding her baby until she can't hide anymore. That's what life does to you. It finally hems you in until you can't hide anymore. And the Bible says that she took and she wove together this little basket. And after weaving the little basket, she put the thing that was most precious to her into that basket. She put her life into that basket 
and ironically, uncannily, you know what she did? She took that little baby in that basket, realizing that her clenched fist, all of her work could not save him. And she took that basket and she put it in the very water that the baby was supposed to be thrown into with all of the others grew to die. She goes down to her greatest fear. She goes to the place called the place of death. And she weaves a basket of love and trust around that baby. And when those maternal hands pushed that little boat off into the water, she released that baby into the hands of God. How empty are the hands of a mother who pushes away the thing that she can't save but loves the most dearly. We, we learn to release with trust. We learn not to run from those rivers of our fear. We learn not to run from those rivers of death. We learn at times the only way to face those things is to take that which we love dearest and let it go. And, and I don't know how to explain this perfectly to you, but somehow it sticks in my heart that at times the right thing to do is release my grip Send it all to the river of my greatest fear. You say it's yours now. It's yours now. Trusting that somehow the universe is made by a good God. And that somehow I have to release all of my fear and all of my scarcity mentality and all of my ungrace and I have to believe that the arc of the universe bends towards something good. We review, we reflect, and we release. And I, I don't know that I've accomplished it today, but what I would really hope to do more than anything else as we head into the new year and next week we pick up with a positive present and a hopeful future what I really wanted to do today was just soften some grips just soften some grips so that maybe we could take our clutching and grabbing hand and give space for divine grace to do some things with our lives that maybe we could have never imagined. And to release ourselves from telling our stories frantically and frenetically, looking for grace and absolution into the heart and the river of God's boundless grace. And just trust. Just trust. That same boy that was pushed into that river one day was called by God to lead that very group of people out of slavery. And it's interesting, this motif of releasing is still involved in this fellow's life because now as a grown man, he stands before God and those people. And as he readies himself to lead those people out of slavery, God looks at him and says, just a second, what is that in your hand? Moses holds his staff up and said it's my staff, this is what I beat off 
bears and lions and wolves for my sheep with. This is my staff, my spring. Staff for always find the shepherd's spring. And an old lady, your old man, said, this is what I got left and it's mine. And God says, throw it down, Steve. He says, throw it down. And Moses says, throw it down. Why in the world would I throw it down? God says, throw it down. And when he throws it down, you remember what it turned into? Snake. Because sometimes the snake hides. Sometimes the snake hides not in your weaknesses. Sometimes the snake hides in your strength. Those things we grip so tightly that we say they're mine. He throws it down. It turns into a snake. And he feels naked and vulnerable. And strength is gone. And God looks at him and smiles and says, Now pick it up. Moses says, pick it up. How do you pick a snake up? Well, you pick a snake up carefully. God says, I'll tell you how to pick it up. Pick it up by its tail. Isn't that crazy? Anybody knows you don't pick a snake up by its tail. You put your foot on the back of its neck and pinch it right between where its ears used to be before it got in the frock of ears. I don't know how that happened, but maybe it was a garden story. You pick it up, and you hold it real carefully. And as Moses, Harris, Moses puts his foot up there to reach down and get that snake real carefully, God says, no, 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 pick it up by its tail. You know how you pick a snake? You know how you pick a poisonous snake up by its tail? There's one way to pick up a poisonous snake by its tail. You do it just like this. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. You pick it up carefully, humbly, dependently. And when that scared, trembling hand touched that snake's tail, it turned back into a staff. And that staff now held loosely. Because when you see how poisonous your strength can be held tightly, you hold those same strengths gently. And that's the staff that stretched out over a sea and the waters opened. That's the staff that hit a rock and water came out. And from that moment on, it was no longer called the staff of Moses. It was called the rod of God. And at the end of this year, I'm just asking you, pain, pleasant, good, bad, quit judging it, quit reviewing it, just take it and release it. Let it go. It just might be that next week you pick it back up, but when you pick it back up, hold it gently, compassionately, and lovingly. Be good to yourself. And hold it trustingly. Review, reflect, and release. Can you say amen? Let's pray together. Lord, sweet, kind, loving God of the universe, teach us how to deal tenderly yet honestly with ourselves. Teach us how to deal compassionately yet forthrightly with ourselves. <coughs> Teach us how not to hide, manipulate, construe. Give us grace and courage to face the ghosts of our life. Give us strength. Give us strength today.
as we move into this week, this last week of the year, may we review and reflect and release with all the grace that the divine gift offers. And may we trust that if we let these little boats filled with everything we love, as we let them go into the rivers of our greatest fear and unknown future, may we trust that these waters are divinely touched with grace. There aren't just crocodiles in these waters to kill. There is life. There is a current that will take this baby to a destiny. A destiny not planned from the foundation of the world, but maybe a destiny chosen by my right action, by the meaning that I choose to bring to this moment. Sweet Christ, give us grace that we might deal gently with ourselves. We lift our hearts in gratitude for 2015. While yet there are things in 2015 that we have no idea how to be thankful for. We are grateful. We are trusting. We are compassionate. And we are letting go. We are remembering and we are forgetting. Give us your grace that it might be so. We pray all of this in Christ's name. And God's people said,